What is great to sing about God's ability to uh, turn good into bad and take the challenges of our life and bring hope into those. In fact, we're going to find out that as we've seen in this whole series, Jesus is the better hope, he's got the better ministry, he's got the better promises. And one of the themes of this whole series in Hebrews has been Jesus is bigger and better and more breathtaking than anything in the Old Testament. And our writer is going to use a different metaphor to describe that today in chapter 8. I mean, did you know that the Old Testament is filled with shadows? And who knows what darkness sits in the hearts of man? The shadow knows. The shadows are of the Old Testament is a metaphor that our writer uses. It's, a, it's, a writer, it's not just used by our particular writer. It's used several times in the Bible to describe the Old Testament as a shadow of something of more substance. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 8 we're studying today. The priests who serve the copy, a copy, of the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. Like, what? Whatever Moses was doing, whatever the tabernacle he built was doing, it was just a shadow of something greater. Now, Paul writes about this in the New Testament as well. Paul says, these things, these feasts, these sacrifices, this worship we do at temple are merely a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ. So he's going to contrast shadows from substance. He's going to say, guys, you've become obsessed with shadows, all the things in the Old Testament. They were good things, but they were shadows. I don't want you obsessed with shadows. I want you obsessed with substance. What does that mean? Well, my dad, he used to come into our room at night, and when we were kids, he would sit down next to us in bed and put a flashlight right here. And when he did that, up on the wall would be a a video projector of his flashlight. And he'd pull out the hand puppets. And he had several that we loved. There was, there was the, the bunny rabbit, you know, this little bunny rabbit with his two little, two little uh, ears. There was a dog. Ruff, 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 ruff. And I remember just watching the walls, all these shadows appear. There was the witch. <laughs> there was actually a, a dinosaur. And I remember all these incredible stories coming to life as shadows on the wall. As I had kids, my dad would come. Now he's had his, uh, his iPhone as the light versus the flashlight. And he would do all these stories. Now as a, as a father, I tried to reenact those things. Because I remember these incredible stories and all these different creatures. And, and I could make a lot of the different creatures. I could tell a little bit of the story. But they were never quite as good. And why is that? It's because those shadows were really animated by my father. My father, his skills, his storytelling is what made the shadows come alive. So those shadows that I remembered pointed me back to the person who was animating the shadows. In the same way, if all of the things in the Old Testament were merely shadows pointing to the person who was animating them or that they were really all about. And our writer is going to say that to all of the Hebrews who are reading this book. He's going to say, in short, don't watch the shadows, watch the substance. 
there are priests who offer gifts. And the Old Testament um, priests would give both gifts and sacrifices. These were different ways you came into temple, came into sacred space with certain gifts for God and certain sacrifices for your sins. So those priests from the Old Testament who offered gifts, and those gifts, according to the law, who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, which means just like there's a priest on earth, but that's just a copy and a shadow of an ultimate priest in heaven. There's a type of gift you can see on earth, but it's really just a shadow or a copy of the ultimate gift that's going to happen in heaven. And there's a law that you try and follow now, but the law, you're not going to be able to satisfy it. It points to the ultimate one who fulfills the law in heaven. So Moses divinely instructed us to build something, a tabernacle, but it's all just a shadow. So don't get distracted by the shadows, he says. Make sure you keep your eyes on the source. So we learned in chapter 7, Jesus is a better priest. He has a better hope. And today we're going to learn he is the substance of the better covenant. We're going to find us three reasons why we need to keep our eyes on the substance of Jesus. Because he's a better person. He's a better gift. And he offers the utmost better covenant. And when you walk following the light, you walk in the light. Not caught into the shadows of legalism, not caught in the shadows of fear, not caught in the shadows of self-righteousness, like many of our readers were caught in. So let's dive into that together. What is the first way or first reason we should keep our eyes on the substance and not the shadow? Well, he's going to basically develop this point in Hebrews chapter 8. The source is a person. And all the religious activity from the Old Testament, all the religious practice you can do then or now is overshadowed by the person of Jesus. Better to have a person rather than religious practice. And the person of Jesus overshadows all that ritual and religious worship that went on in the Old Testament. Here's how he says it. Now this is the main point. Oh, I like that. Several times we've been reading through Hebrews, like, what's the main point here? This can be, you know, just so complicated at times. I'm getting some of it. He goes, here's what I've been saying for the last couple chapters. Here's the main point of the things we are saying. We have a high priest. Not just a high priest, such a high priest. A permanent high priest. A predicted high priest. A priest of the, of the order of Melchizedek high priest. Who is seated, he's already done his work, he's now seated at the right hand of God on the throne of his majesty, advocating for you, making, making uh, petition for you, giving you full access to the king, full access to God. That's what Jesus is doing as the high priest. And that is done in heaven. And this high priest is also a minister of the sanctuary, the ultimate tabernacle in heaven, and the true tabernacle, the substance one, that the one down here is just a shadow of, the Lord erected the true one, not man. So his whole idea here is when God gave instructions to Moses about building the earthly tabernacle, it was actually a shadow of the real one that sits up in heaven. And Jesus 
is the ultimate high priest who sits in that tabernacle and the high priests we hear about here on earth are just shadows pointing to the ultimate one. So a couple things about Jesus. Number one, he's our ultimate high priest. He's the person who replaces all the religious practice. Look how it describes the high priest. He's a minister. You see, if you're part of religious practice, you need to do the ministering. You need to offer enough gifts to maybe get forgiveness. You need to do enough stuff that maybe God will let you in. You're the one in charge of doing all the ministering and all the giving and all the serving and all the working. He says, oh, no, no, no. The ultimate source is Jesus in heaven, and he is doing the ministering for you. You can look to his ministering your behalf. So you're not as strong as your prayer life. You're not as strong as your ability to minister. You're as strong as Jesus' ability to minister. Ooh, that's pretty good. So what is this true tabernacle in heaven compared to the man-made tabernacle that Moses makes? Well, let me show you a picture of the tabernacle. Now, this is what the tabernacle Moses designed looked like. And when the Christianity shows up, the tabernacle has been replaced by the temple, but very similar construction, very similar process of getting into God's space. But as Christianity begins to see that Jesus fulfills everything about this tabernacle, did you know the Romans considered Christians atheists as they began to spread the message of Christianity? Isn't that weird? Why would the Romans consider the Christians atheists? Because they would ask them, okay, well, tell me about your religion. Well, it's not really a religion, it's a person. Okay, well, where's your temple? We don't have a temple anymore, the Christians would say. We are the temple. God lives in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Romans would kind of scratch their head and say, well, where do you offer sacrifices? And they would say, oh, we don't offer sacrifices. We are a living sacrifice. We live for God because of what he did by dying and living in us. Really? See, so you don't have a temple he goes, well, where are your priests? And the Christians would say, well, we have a high priest who gives us full access to the presence of God, so now I am my own priest. The Romans would say, what kind of a religion doesn't have priests, doesn't have temples, and doesn't have sacrifices? Ah, one that thinks that Jesus fulfilled all of that and now lives in you and makes you the minister, makes you the priest, makes you the very temple of God. So with that in mind, I want to tell you, before you understand um, what the substance is, you have to see kind of what the shadow is that points to that. So here's what the tabernacle looked like. You would come in the main entrance. You would offer some sacrifices here at the altar. You could slaughter it here at these different slaughtering uh, areas. You would wash your hands here at the brazen lever. And then you'd go into the holy place, and only priests were allowed in here. And this holy place was composed of two sections. There was a curtain at the front that the priest could go through, and they would enter into the holy place. That's this section. And there was another curtain here they could not go through, which gave access to the most holy place where only the high priest could go and only once a year. So imagine this stage is that holy place, that tent within the outside structure, and you're a priest. 
you come into the holy place and you would notice a few things. You would notice that there is a menorah in this space. And you'd notice it was lit with seven candles. Not six, seven. Pointing to the seven Jewish feasts of which Jesus will fulfill. He'll, he'll die on one. He'll be buried on one. He'll raise from the dead on one. He's born on one. I think one day uh, he might even get raptured on one of them. We, we'll get raptured on one. But all of these pointed to, these shadows of feasts in the Old Testament pointed to his first coming and probably his second coming. Then there was another thing in the, in the uh, holy place and this was the incense altar. And smoke would come up from the incense altar to represent God's presence, to remind us that our prayers are heard by God as they go up into the heavens. And this is what the priests would do as they were ministering before the Lord. Then over on your right and my left was the table of showbread, which had 12 pieces of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, a reminder that God keeps his promises. So all of this was a shadow to show that Jesus ultimately kept the promise of God. He was the priest that intercedes for us in prayer, and he is the ultimate source of life, and he fulfilled all of those feasts. Now, if you were a priest in this space, you would then turn around, you would see behind you would be a curtain. That was a big, thick, three to six inches thick curtain that only the high priest could go behind and only once a year. So no one ever saw what happened back there because you have to see through a three to six inch uh, curtain. But today I want to give you a treat. While the team is setting up the, the tabernacle back there, or the ark, I want to give you a chance to see what would happen back there once a year with the high priest. So I'm going to go back there and be the high priest and show you what they did, which was a shadow what Jesus would do. Now, the readers know all about this, even though they've never seen it, but they become obsessed with it. How could the high priest and the, the, the rituals he performs no longer be important? And our writer's saying, well, you've been distracted by the shadows. Those things were to point to the substance was Jesus, the ultimate high priest. All right, so put on your x-ray glasses here because I'm going to give you a chance to see what would happen. It's Yom Kippur. The high priest would be going behind the curtain to get forgiveness for the entire community. So as he would head back behind the curtain, I'll have to step up on the ladder here, but let me show you what this looks like. You know, the Levitical system of offerings and sacrifices was really designed to show that sinful people couldn't just waltz into God's presence. He was too holy. In fact, this curtain represented a barrier that even the priests couldn't come into this space. Only the high priest, and only one time a year. No one else could enter. And even fully prepared and washed and cleansed and, and prayed up, that high priest needed a barrier. He would take a smoking incense bowl, and as he walked toward the ark, this smoke represented a barrier of protection between the high priest and God's presence appearing between those two angels. You remember what Moses said? He said, no one, no one can see God's presence and live. He would then take another bowl filled with the blood of goats and that of a bull, and he would pour it between those two angels. 
those angels were looking down upon the mercy seat or the propitiation, the place that would absorb the consequences of all of our wrongdoing. And that blood temporarily absorbed those things so that we didn't get the consequences of what we did wrong. It took it on our behalf on the mercy seat. But all of these things were really shadows pointing to the substance of Christ. There was never enough goats and never enough sheep sacrifices. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice they pointed toward. And as Paul says in in the New Testament, Jesus was our mercy seat, our propitiation. His blood fully and finally satisfied all of the judgment and wrath of God on our behalf. And when Jesus died, remember the curtain was torn in two. So not just high priests, not just priests, but all of us can boldly approach the throne of grace because of what he's done. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't get obsessed with shadows. They pointed to the substance of Christ. It can be easy to confuse shadows with substance. It's a good looking guy up there. Ah, did I trick you for a moment? Did you think that was the real me? Did you get confused focusing on the shadow and not the substance? See, that was the idea. What the high priest did was important. What he did was very important for a long period of time. But they became obsessed with the shadow, which was supposed to point to the fulfillment of that shadow. The outline, that's an outline of me, it's not really me. The high priest, the gifts... The atonement was just an outline of the ultimate person to come. So, have you got focused on good things? The law, righteousness, but not ultimate things? See, this idea is so important because there's kind of like a different worldview here. For Think of Frederick Nietzsche, for example. Frederick Nietzsche will say there is no substance, there is no, nothing true that you can lean toward. Contrast that with Plato. Plato had the idea that everything you see in this life, courage, love, these are real things, but they're just shadows of the ultimate reality. There's truth is knowable. Truth is concrete. There is substance. There is truth out there that can be known. That was Plato's idea. Nietzsche shows up and says, ah, you know what? There's no such thing as anything true. And we're living in a culture today who's living out the, the fulfillment of Nietzsche's prediction that unanchoring truth from ultimate reality would lead to a culture where no one knows if anything's true. We can't agree on anything anymore because no longer do we believe that there's any substance out there that can be known. Now the Hebrews had a different problem. They believed truth was knowable, but they became obsessed with the shadow of truth rather than the substance of truth. Christianity shows up and says there is a truth that's knowable, but it's ultimately not about theory, it's about a person. And that person is Jesus. So, don't get distracted by the things in the Old Testament, the shadows that were supposed to point to the substance, which is Jesus. All right? Second reason we need to focus on the substance is he's got the better gift. Now, what does it say here? It goes on to say that he is the better gift. Now, there's two kinds of gifts I want to talk about. There's a gift that says, I relish you, and a gift that says, I need to repair for something I've done. And here's a classic example. I was talking to a 20-year-old the other day who's kind of getting into the whole dating scene, and I described how important it is to, you know, give lavishly, to care for, to kind of romance the women in his life. And I said, when I first got married in my 20s, you know, my wife and I would have a fight, 
and I'd go buy her flowers to repair, right? Repair for the thing I said, or repair for the miscommunication, or repair for the boneheaded thing I did. Those kind of gifts are important to repair for the problem. But that's, I started thinking to myself, so the only time I give my wife flowers is when we have a fight. So if she wants flowers, we have to start a fight. This is not a good pattern, right? That's not a good pattern at all. Instead, don't you want a gift when nothing's going wrong? A gift that says, I relish you. I'm glad I'm married to you. A gift that comes from your company that says, so glad to have you on the team, not just because it's the appropriate employee appreciation day. There's a type of gift that says, I'm glad I'm married to you. I'm so proud of you. I'm glad for who you are. That's a different kind of gift. And the gifts of the Old Testament were all the repair gift. I messed up. God, I made a mistake. God, I'm out of your presence. I'm bringing this gift to the altar to repair what I've done temporarily so I can come back into your presence. Jesus is going to offer the perfect repair gift when he dies on the cross. But it's more than that. It's more than a gift that says, I've repaired you. It's a gift that says, I relish you. You're adopted in my family. You're a child of God. You are blessed. You are my friend. And God lavishes gifts upon us, not just to repair the problem. That's dealt with. Now, a greater gift is he says, now you are my son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. So keep that in mind as we jump into the text. Every high priest, remember the, the shadow high priest, every high priest, the shadow ones, are appointed to offer gifts, repair gifts. We've got out of God's favor gifts and sacrifice gifts, repair sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. So he says, we have these priests on earth. They offer repair gifts and repair sacrifices. But they didn't get us to relish, to know we had favor with God, to know we were adopted. It was always like, one more repair, one more repair, one more repair, one more repair. Can we ever just know that we're, we're at peace, that God relishes us? Yes. But it was necessary that a better gift came, not just a repair gift, but I relish you gift. So this one, Jesus, the ultimate high priest, brought a different kind of gift. He brought something to offer that was different. It repaired and it relished. For if he were on earth, he's not, he's in the real tabernacle in heaven, he would not be a priest on earth. He'd have to repair for himself since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. But all of that, guys, you need to understand, it's good stuff. But they were just serving a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things, the ultimate things in heaven, as Moses divinely instructed. It was good. But it pointed to the true tabernacle in heaven. So, he quotes the Old Testament, says, For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern, the pattern,
pattern shown you on this mountain. So Moses was told to build a tabernacle based on a pattern or a blueprint of something in heaven. But now, because Jesus is working in the ultimate tabernacle in heaven, he was the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate high priest, he has obtained a more excellent ministry because it's a permanent one. It's a heavenly one. Inasmuch as he is the mediator, remember he's sitting at the right hand of God, of better covenant. We'll talk about that in a second. Which he's established on better promises. Permanent promises. Permanent gift. Relishing. I relish you kind of gift. Not just I repair. See what he's saying? Do you see how powerful it is to know you are relished by God? Not, hey, I'll give you another chance to fix this. I'll give you another chance to, to repair this. That's religion. Jesus says, no, I can relish you now. You can be at peace with me now. You can know you're going to heaven now. And here's the thing. The reason it's a better ministry is because when you know you're relished, when you know you're fully and finally forgiven, when you know God has repaired everything you've done, past, present, future, and you are relished by your heavenly Father, you know what it makes you want to do? Go and repair with other people. Not because they deserve it. Oh, they're really crabby. I can't believe what they said to me. But if God repaired what I've done, and God can relish me despite what I've done, then maybe I can learn how to relish and repair with others. Do you know you're relished by God? Do you know you've been fully repaired in Christ if you're a Christian? You ever taken the time to think about that and say, what would a person that's fully relished by God, what would that person do? How would they live? How would they talk? How would they reconcile with people who don't deserve it? I had those moments a couple weeks ago. I had somebody I haven't talked to in 12 years after a big blow-up. And I had the opportunity to go and, and, and be around them, maybe repair. And you know, it's the right thing to do wasn't quite enough motivation. It's what pastors should do wasn't enough motivation. So I went and spent a weekend with this person, and it went shockingly well. It's just shockingly well. And in the presence of it, I could just feel myself angry and reliving reasons why this wasn't right and I shouldn't have to do this and, and why you know, the person shouldn't be forgiven and all that. And I went, you know, whether the person deserves it or not, whether they deserve an extra chance or not, God's forgiven me so much more. How could I not? I had a bunch of reasons why I should not. In light of what Jesus did for me, how can I not repair? And then after the weekend, I thought, you know what? I just need to do my heart good. I need to call this person and bless them. Hey, it was great talking to you this week. I'm really proud of you. I was, but I was also mad. But speaking of blessing, speaking of repair, relishing someone transforms my heart because of what God did for me. And what I realized is one of the reasons I was having trouble forgiving this person is because they did something I wouldn't do. I was actually obsessed with the law. 
Now, mine's going to seem silly to you, but yours would seem silly to me. I grew up in a family that doesn't cuss. Now, some of you are really good at it. And well done. You're really good at cussing. Like, I'm not good at cussing. I just, my dad didn't do it. My mom did it. So for me, you, you, like, cussing somebody out would be like the ultimate sign of disrespect. And the fact that I got cussed out 12 years ago just was the ultimate sign of disrespect. I wouldn't do that. And therefore, for somebody to do that to me was like the ultimate sign of disrespect. Like, wow, Chad, what a prude you are. Okay. So I took a piece of the law. Don't cuss people out. I would never do that. That person did that to me. Therefore, they're not worthy of being repaired. That's how the law corrupts. A good thing turned into a legalistic thing makes you self-righteous. And probably the reason you won't repair somebody right now is because you've got a list of something you would never do. I would never forget to say something on my birthday. I would never have lost my temper like that. I would never have fill in the blank. And until you deal with the law, the fact that you think you keep the law and you don't think they keep the law, you're never going to repair. Repent of the law. Stop being focused and watching the shadows of the law. Instead, see the substance of Christ. See that you're relished in Christ. Then go and repair with your enemies. Not a great gift? Great gift. My goodness. He's the person. He's the gift. But he's also a better covenant. And this is so powerful. Let me show you what he's saying here. The source of the shadows is a covenant. And the word covenant is like the strongest word for uh, a legal deal. It is a, um, it's not just a boilerplate kind of contract. This is a very specific, very detailed bonding covenant or contract that God wants to make with you. The source that God offers is the ultimate deal. However, there was an old covenant in the Old Testament, and this high priest is going to offer a better covenant. Now, the old covenant said, I won't because you won't. I only will if you will. That's the old covenant. You do your part, I do my part. You don't do your part, I don't do my part. But the new covenant, the new covenant says, I will, even if you won't. God says, even when you break your promises, even when you don't do what you say you're going to do, even when you don't do for the 20th time what you promised to do, even though you won't, I will still be faithful, and I will still love, and I will still forgive, and I will still pursue. And this new covenant, I will when you won't, far overshadows the I won't if you won't covenant. In fact, you want to know how to race your marriage to a divorce? Chad, thank you. I was just thinking that. How do I do that? Here's a perfect way. Only do what the other person does. If they won't do something, you don't do something. And just watch the race to the bottom. When somebody's not worthy of acceptance, never give them acceptance. When somebody is acting disrespectful, don't respect them. When somebody doesn't look like they deserve affirmation, don't give them any. And watch your family, watch your company, watch your department disintegrate as a race to the bottom as everybody only does what they should do. And now contrast with a family, a marriage, a department in your company that follows a new covenant. You know what? You didn't have your best day. 
but I still love you. I still appreciate you. I still value you as a person. I know you had a tough day, but I'm going to pour out encouragement to you or acceptance to you. Don't you want a marriage like that? Don't you want a family like that? Don't you want a church like that? Don't you want to work someplace like that? That's what this new covenant is. And here's how he explains it. For if that first covenant, if you won't, then I won't. If it had been faultless, if it had worked out real well, um, we wouldn't need a second one. Because finding fault with them, oh, they didn't keep it. They didn't do it. Because he found fault, they weren't keeping their side. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I'm going to have to make a new covenant. Because you won't, I'm going to make a new covenant where I will when you won't. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with your fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not keep their part. They did not continue in my covenant. They didn't do their part of the deal. They didn't check the boxes. So I disregarded them. They won't, I won't, says the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I'm going to put my law not on the Ten Commandments, but in their heart, in their mind. And I will be their God. I will just relish them. They can relish me. They're going to be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all are going to know me in that day. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And doesn't this sound like the high priest going back there? Only now it's a permanent pouring on the mercy seat. Look at that. Your sins no more, mercy for your unrighteousness, God will even when you won't. In that he says, a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is going to vanish away. It's going to be fulfilled. So quick Old Testament reminder here. God makes a promise to Abraham. He has a son, Isaac, and Jacob named Israel. Those 12 sons, one's named Joseph. They end up in bondage to Egypt for 400 years where Moses leads them out to go to the promised land. But they don't follow him, so they have to wander for you know, 40 years because of their disobedience. The book of Judges, people disobeying the book of Judges after Joshua brings them in the land. So God tries kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. The kings can't get them on track. So he gives them over to bondage. The northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians, and the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom. And right here in this section, during the Babylonian exile, a prophet named Jeremiah writes these words that the book of Hebrews just quoted. Let me show you. Hebrews 8. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, coming out of Jeremiah during a time of discipline of the Babylonian exile. Behold, the days are coming, says Jeremiah, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, they were unfaithful to me, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Hebrews 8, notice the parallel, exactly what he says next in Jeremiah 31. For I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it in their hearts. For I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother. Jump to the bottom. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. 
See, what Jesus is going to come and talk about is exactly what was prophesied by Jeremiah. God knew we don't keep our covenant. So he made a new covenant. And that new covenant was designed so that we'd know that even when we won't, he will. And we'd be wooed by his love. We'd be transformed by his mercy. We'd be drawn into his presence. So here's my challenge to you. What would it look like this week to live life from the substance of the new covenant? Not the shadow of the old. No longer are you going to focus on, I won't because you didn't. I don't have to because you didn't. I won't, I won't. You owe me, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me. Look at the contract. Instead, I want to be generous. I want to be patient. I want to be lavish. I want to forgive. I will even if you won't. I will because you need it, not because you deserve it. I will because he gave it even when I didn't deserve it. Live life from the substance of the new covenant. I'm going to invite the band to come out. As you think about the new covenant, you think of communion. Right? Communion. Where Jesus says he brings a new covenant. I was talking to a buddy recently at our church, and he's a doctor. And he had a guy came in who had a real challenge going on in his life. And so he gave a medical referral to this guy. And the guy went to the specialist and was just ticked off. Like he called up the original doctor, my friend, and said, you gave me the wrong referral, I'm going to sue you, and the papers are coming. Didn't hear much about it. A couple years go by, and he gets a phone call. The lawyer calls up this doctor and says, hey, can we talk for a second? Sure, what's going on? Turns out uh, you were right, and I've got this condition that you're the specialist and can read. Would you be willing to help me because I have not gotten this fixed and I thought man how's my friend going to respond to this this person doesn't deserve forgiveness doesn't deserve a second chance he threatened him with a lawsuit he said I told him I said you know what I'd love to help really he said well can I tell you I found out that when I threatened you with referring me to the wrong person it turned out I was wrong but I wasn't man enough to call you and apologize over the last two years and I'm sorry it was my friend's graciousness of being willing to help even when the other person wouldn't do the right thing that began to transform his heart. And that's what Jesus did for us, right? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he said, a new covenant I bring to you. A new covenant. I will, even if you won't. Why don't you stand with us as we sing of communion? There's a time in heaven in the book of Revelation that we stand before a God who's holy, holy, holy. And because of what he's done and what Jesus did for us, we sing together of his holiness. We are made right with God because he is the ultimate covenant, the ultimate gift, and the person that all those religious practices pointed toward. Let's sing together. <laughs>